found sources about the history of the ZNKR, about how my Koryu line, Musashi Denryu, was invented very late century and how this all fitted together. So I was very realistic about what I was doing. I wasn't trying to replicate any fantasy about samurai. I was from the very start exposed to the European Jodo and because I'm lucky enough to speak a couple of language, I was able to just go over there and start speaking to all of them. Because I really like this cross-disciplinary approach and because of my multicultural upbringing, I've always reached out to other countries and other people as different as possible as me just to understand their perspective because this is so enriching. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Tokushikai Inside Look podcast. Today we're speaking with Stefan Nagy from Paris, France. Stefan has been training for over 17 years with extended stints in the US while teaching at New York University. Stefan holds the rank of Yaro Godan and Jodo Yondan and has earned several tournament honors, including a series of golds and silvers in 2005 and 6 at the European Yaro Championships, the French Nationals, and the BKA International Taikai. He also recently achieved Sandan Bronze at the Ishido Cup in 2018 for Jodo. In this wide-ranging conversation, we talk about how he lucked upon an Iaido dojo in the very beginning, about different styles of teaching and leading in a dojo, about the various ways in which the social aspect, the community, and the feeling of family can impact your life, not just in your practice. As a professor and researcher, Stefan's eye for detail and spoken delivery of ideas and insights was such a delight. The clarity and conciseness of the different topics we discussed was so refreshing, and I'm looking forward to a round two of our conversation. So without further ado, please enjoy this inside look with Stefan Nagy. My name is Stefan Nagy. I was born in the U.S. in Columbia, Maryland, but I was raised in France. I was born from a French mother and an Iraqi father. So I have kind of a multicultural upbringing, even though my main culture, I would say, is French, ultimately. Uh, since I don't really have rooted ties to the U.S., it was mostly a French upbringing. I mention it because it's key to my professional development, and I guess later on my Buddha development. I'm a bioarchaeologist, which means I was, that's what happens when you get trained as a classic archaeologist and then move on to biological anthropology. So what I study as a professional is what we call skeletal biology, so the study of human bones, both in the archaeological context or in the past, and also in a forensic context, in a, the medical legal setting. I've been trained both in France and the US, again, for similar reason, because I have a dual citizenship. I've always had, I was always keen on learning from different sources and trying to achieve my goals from very perpendicular transverse angles always, not trying to follow the main road, trying to find alternative options. So. After I've exhausted the uh, French system with my first master's, with my first master, I realized that I, I, I needed something a bit more and, and a change of perspective. So I, I moved to the U.S. to continue my training in, in, in biological anthropology. And then I came back to France, mostly for financial reasons, because the U.S. at the PhD level becomes so ridiculously expensive that it was more interesting to go back to France where universities are basically free. So it was... Um, and pretty much at the same level. So another move in my, in my academic development. I don't have any interesting origin stories for my Budo life. It was actually pretty childish because as a kid, since I was about 12 or 13, I was a huge nerd 
playing role-playing games, video games, and very much attracted to Japanese anime and, 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 uh, and manga, which were fairly popular in France in the 80s and 90s. And so... Which ones in that, particular? Well, the main one was uh, Dragon Ball. That was the... Oh, yeah. The, the huge thing. And I must have been 12 when it first aired in France. And, and then I went on and bought the actual Japanese manga, even though I couldn't read them. I still had them. So it was just leaf through them and, and, and read them that way just to get ahead of the anime and know what was going to happen. So, But because I was playing fantasy role-playing games, I was really interested in, in, in medieval context. And that's actually one of the my key lead to becoming a, an archaeologist because I was a history buff even in, in, in primary school and, and early days of high school. And because I wanted to understand the context of my role-playing games in medieval times, I actually started to specialize in medieval archaeology and, and in uh, military architecture, so the, the Templars and stuff like that. So I was attracted to swords, medieval European swords, very quickly. And I started collecting swords, like the, the Spanish Toledo replicas that you can find all over Europe when I was late teenager, early adult, I guess. Uh, early 20s. So I, I always had a sword interest, but more from a European military perspective at first. Um, when I returned, so, and, and I wasn't doing any Budo when I was a, a teenager. I was mainly in track and field. That was the only thing I was good at, uh, 100 meters, long jump, stuff like that, which I practiced a little bit in high school and a little bit at university level. But I got a, a knee injury doing some silly basketball stuff. And so I had to, to cut that short. So when I left for my master's in the U.S. in 99, I had no Udo experience except dabbling in karate when I was a kid, but that doesn't really count. And when I returned to France in 2003, I was looking for an actual Buddha. I was actually thinking about trying to find a kendo club because finally my interests kind of merged together between the, the swords and Japan. I was, I've always been a huge fan of Japanese culture through the manga and, and, and anime literature but also through food culture as a French, that's always one of my interests. So I was, a, I was a Japanese restaurant critique in France on my leisurely days. I would go to all the ramen shops and try to uh, see which one was uh, authentic and not stuff like that. So you know, it was a very basic approach to Japanese culture. So when I tried to merge them together, trying to find a, a sport, I, I looked for kendo clubs. So I moved back from Paris in 2003 and as I was looking kind of randomly going through the streets next to my apartments, going grocery shopping, I found a, a small private gymnasium with a leaflet uh, on it with a guy wearing a, a full black hakama and kegogi and with a sword and saying, you know, Yaido, the art of the sword, blah, blah, blah. You know, class starts you know, next week or something. I was like, wow. I, Never seen this before. I was really looking for kendo. That was the only thing I knew. And I thought that might be interesting. So I, I called in and it turned out that the, 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 my first instructor had just put up the leaflet like three hours earlier and was literally starting his first class two days after that. So I joined in, in, the, joined in right away and immediately it felt right. Immediately I loved the teaching parts, the perspective, the sword. It wasn't physical, so I wasn't damaging my knee more than needed, even though my injury is fairly minor. I was conscious of it. So I could feel that I could, I could practice this for a long time. And it just clicked. So that's basically how it started. And then I, that was 2003. 
I was, how old was I? 23, 28, sorry. And, and that's it. And since then, I, I've never really uh, started practicing. And it was both, it was first the Ido, and then I think a year or two after that, the dojo opened a, a Jodo section. So we started right away, Yaido and Jodo. So this was at the school? So no, this was a this was a private owned, privately run dojo. We would just rent the space, and and that's it. So that was outside of the outside of the school. Okay. Well, you when you said you were coming going back to France, you were looking for kendo. At, at that time, were you aware of what Yaido was? And then wh- when you actually found out about it, how did your your kind of interest in the sword change? When you're thinking, oh, there's this bamboo yeah. thing where I can hit each other, but no, actually, there's this other thing where we just do forms. Right. Yeah. No. That I, I was not aware at all of Iaido or Jodo whatsoever. I, I, w- I had some understanding of kendo through uh, even videos because uh, it was the early days of the internet, so I don't think I've seen videos there. I don't even remember. I've probably seeing the kendo club in the U.S. I guess that's probably the best memory I have. But that's it. I, I had no understanding of the Ido. So when I saw it, it really clicked because it was the sword component that I knew. And I was already familiar with the Japanese sword system and, 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 and what it entails on a cultural level. And because those are the things that I've, I've, I've looked for just as a hobby. And the martial art aspect was also something that clicked because I was looking for a martial art, not necessarily a, a sport. And, but I didn't know there was this option. So it really clicked. Those two components felt right. And so the form approach made sense because we had real swords, so I didn't even question it. And this was actually a fairly good process for me because I'm extremely, I, I think I realized very rapidly that it would be very helpful for my personal development, this kind of inner training and focus and, and calm. I'm, I'm very, I'm a very nervous person and I react very rapidly. And I was always conscious that I had a hard time controlling some of my feelings and some of my emotional reactions. So it felt like I could use this, even though it wasn't specifically taught that way. It immediately kind of soothed me and calmed me. And so I realized, yeah, I, I like the feeling. I like the, the focus. I like the, the slow building up of skills. I'm a researcher and I'm, 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 I'm trying to be extremely meticulous in my work. So I really like to work gradually from the ground up. So if I don't understand something, I always go back to the basics, to the original sources, try to understand where things are coming from, whether it's the, you know, the etymology of a word or the, the, the origin of a scientific concept or whatever. And then I built up my skills on top of this to be able to use that in my regular professional uh, career or now as a technique in, in, in Budo. So it felt right. It really, the parallel between my professional life and, and, and my uh, Budo experience are strong and, and are, there's, there's a lot of overlap. And so it clicked that way. Hmm. That, that's really interesting. Could you talk more about that? When they were teaching something, they say, oh, the origins of Iaido was through this time period in Japan or this kata is supposed to be about this kind of scenario. How did you explore that further? Like speaking of the ways that you, you do your work, like what did you look right. into? Yeah. So very, so at first, again, it was, it was still the early days of the internet. So I didn't have much opportunity to search that way, but I 
well, actually one of the key piece of literature that, that helped me understand Iaido very quickly was Eiji Yoshikawa's uh, novel on, on Musashi, the dual volume that he wrote in the late 19th century. And so it's a beautiful novel about Musashi's life. And this was the, the only kind of historical perspective that I had. So as a historian, I started looking on uh, about the author, then I started looking about Musashi's life, then I found, you know, different type of rings and stuff like that. And then I quickly realized uh, you know, the, the Bushido code and all those kind of easy, easy to access pieces of literature that are kind of the traditional things that people throw at you whenever you speak about samurai and, 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 the, and martial arts and stuff like that in Japan. But I was trained as a historian, so I always have a very critical perspective on these things. So very rapidly, I realized that those were romanticized, those were an ideal construct, a modern construct of what uh, feudal Japan looked like. So I really tried to look at it from a historical perspective. Um, I didn't care about what was true or not. I just wanted to make sure that what I was, my understanding of what we were doing today in Iaido, where, where did it fit? So rapidly, I found sources about the history of the ZMKR, about how my Koryu line, Musoshinden Ryu, was invented very late century and, and how this all fitted together. So I was very realistic about what I was doing. I, there was no, no, I wasn't trying to replicate any fantasy about summarizing or anything like this. I didn't care about that, even though because I was a role-playing game addict, dressing up and playing with sword was always fun. So... Now, I, I can't say that that wasn't part of, my, of the appeal. But yeah, again, it was at first, the first couple of years, I tried to use the resource that I had. Now, in the past five, five or so years, well, 10 years, I guess, with the full development of the internet and access to uh, huge resources of information, it was really fun to dig into proper resources and access and you know, discuss with uh, some of my senseis, discuss with whomever had some knowledge about what we were doing and, and the meaning behind what we were doing. And, why we're doing it. So there's so much out there that was, it was fairly easy to access two kind of sources. First, the language. I have no Japanese. I don't speak Japanese. I've, I've learned a little bit. I've mostly, as most of us, technical words, I can easily describe how to kill in three different ways someone, but I probably can't order a drink. So it's not very useful Japanese vocabulary. But because I like language, I speak a couple of languages because I've, 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 I've worked in several countries, I always had this appeal to understand the etymology of the words. Uh, so whenever we were using, I was actually a little bit surprised at first that in dojo, we conserved the Japanese vocabulary uh, for techniques and the word translated. And so when I questioned that, I realized that, of course, it's to give us kind of a homogenized understanding of uh, and a common language to describe things that are inherently Japanese. So that, that makes total sense. It also preps us national seminars when there's a Japanese delegation coming in. And usually the translation is not complete because they keep the Japanese technical terms when they translate in whatever language. So it helps us with this. But then deconstructing the words themselves really helped understand the technique. And so understanding, you know, it, it's not because we use a Japanese word that there's any mystical meaning to it. It's just a word. And, and there was discussing this actually last night with Andy Watson sensei during one, at the end of a, one of our Zoom class. And you know, it's just a word. So it's just usually a descriptor of what you're supposed to be. 
but because it's just a word, of course, there's plenty of variation in the interpretation of what that means, a personal interpretation. And so it's interesting to understand these variations of interpretation from just a simple word uh, that, that describes a specific technique. Could you bring up one word as an example? Yeah, we were talking about, yesterday we were talking about kibori and, and the differences in grips that we have. So I was asking the difference between shimeru and chibori, and then of course the broader tenouchi, and because we were discussing the originally the difference between tomete and kirite, the, the wrist movements, the wrist position you're supposed to show, the differences you're supposed to show depending on the movement you're doing. And I was just illustrating the fact that sometimes I hear foreigners like me using the wrong definition for a specific technical term. So, uh, for example, using the chibori definition of wringing the towel for shimeru, which apparently means you know just squeezing or gripping, which is not exactly the same. Uh, there's no, no twisting action. It's not exactly the same uh, movement. And the way that it it's applied in various martial arts. So in kendo, they use chibori apparently even for cutting, which in EI, most people, at least that's what I was told, should not be using this particular term or technique for the cutting uh, because it's more general tenouchi and, and, and eventually what in sense I mentioned, uh, kakaru, just the, 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 the slight touching of the, the, the saya with your left hand and, and, and you know, gentle squeezing instead of hard grip. And so all those very small differences in translation make a whole difference in how you practice because it completely changes actual technical pathways because you're not implementing the same uh, muscles, you're not using the same muscles, you're not implementing the same sequences. So either you do a hard grip with your five fingers at once like in, in Chibori, where you, it's the whole grip hand that is engaged, or you use a more subtle, you know, uh, small finger, ring finger, middle finger sequence of squeezing, which is a much more subtle action. So this was of interest to me, uh, first at my level to progress, of course, but also in general as a, as a, I guess as a scholar, uh, because I'm interested in such uh, finer nuance, because I want to make sure that I when I use a word or when I uh, talk about a concept, I know where it's coming from. So I guess this, this first dimension of sources, the, 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 the Japanese language itself, is deep enough that you can get completely buried under the information. And then there's, of course, the historical aspect of it. Who were our census lineage? Why are we doing this particular kata in the ZNKR forms? Its relationship with, for my lineage for, with Musa Shinden and the various levels. So understanding this is also very important to, for me at least, to understand the variations and to understand why it has evolved and why it has, in most cases, nothing to do with battlefield or any you know, kind of idealized samurai way of killing people or whatever. Uh, but it's just basically some technical exercise to get your body prepped, uh, just in case, to be ready, uh, to be adaptable, to be you know, the, the, one of the reading of Yaido. So be ready whenever... Uh, at all, at all time, uh, to react appropriately. So I really like that. That was a that was a nice layered path, I guess, for me, where we have the technical component of learning a form, the choreography of a kata, with with its hurdles, 
with its physical hurdles, with its mental hurdles of understanding you know, timing, of, an, of understanding synchronizing movements or desynchronizing upper body, lower body, and then resynchronizing it at another level. Those challenges were extremely interesting at a personal level. And then there was the whole broader historical, cultural, uh, linguistic context uh, around it that I was always fascinated by. So, so yeah, it, it really made sense for me to just go into this weird dressed up martial arts <laughs> you sort around in a, in, a, in a dojo. So it makes sense. And hearing about the type of work that you do, where you have to be very meticulous and looking at details and very discerning of things that when you're looking at data, one thing could mean one thing, something else could mean another thing. It makes kind of a lot of sense that this is something that attracts you. It's it's also interesting because when we first learn EIDO, we don't realize there's so much depth to where it comes from. Could you talk about how in the beginning when you're learning, it, of course, it feels like there's just so much information. Gradually, how did you kind of decide on, how did this become more of a, a kind of a stable thing where you it's no longer something fresh and new and something you're discovering and something that, okay, it's just a regular part of your life? Yeah. Good question. Actually, I've, I've, I've reflected on it probably when you when you've asked me to, to come on the podcast because I started putting thing, thoughts together. And so I think there's, there are two components to it. And the first one that I actually wanted to, to mention here is the, the community aspect of Yaido, of Budo in general. This was key for me for several reasons. As I've mentioned before, in my professional career, I was always keen on reaching out internationally and also cross-disciplinary, meaning that even though I was an archaeologist, I wanted to be trained in another field, which is biological anthropology. And then I wanted to, I kept breaching boundaries and, and disciplinary because I really liked this cross-disciplinary approach. And also because of my multicultural upbringing, I really always looked for, I've always reached out to other countries and other people as different as possible as me, just to understand their perspective, because this is so enriching that it always teaches you something fundamental about your own, about your own growth. And I've applied this to Yaido. Well, I, I didn't apply it. I kind of fell into it because luckily the, the dojo I signed up, my first dojo, the first dojo I signed up in Paris was part of the uh, Ishido Sensei lineage in Europe. So from, I think my second year, I guess from 2004 and on, I've, I've attended European seminars. Uh, when Ishida Sensei was coming, whether in England, in, in the Netherlands. Fortunately, I think for two years, uh, 2004 and five or five and six, Ishida Sensei also came to France because his representative in France organized also a private seminar. So I was, from the very start, exposed to the European Benjodo. And because I'm lucky enough to speak a couple of languages, I was able to just go over there and start speaking to all of them. And in addition to this exposure through seminars, I was lucky because in the French Dojo in Paris, we had a, a British uh, practitioner who came, Al Colborn, because he was working in Paris. He was finding a job in France, came over, and our dojo was recommended, so he started training with us. And he, he really acted as a, as a senpai to me those first uh, years. He was uh, ahead of me. He's now a Rokudan in Jodo and, and Kodan in Niai, I think. Yeah, he still has his, his, his Rokudan in Niai. And uh, at the time, he was probably Samdan or something in both but he was, he's younger, he's much fitter. So he has, he has beautiful EI and Joe. 
and he would, and because I was probably one of the only one in the dojo speaking uh, half of this in English, we could communicate uh, because he doesn't have any French, and uh, and so we we became friends uh, fairly rapidly. And through him, he introduced me kind of to the, the British crowd every time we would go on seminars. And so I was lucky to be introduced very early on to influential sensei such as Hobson Sensei, who became my sensei two years ago, and, and Watson Sensei, and the, Basically, a lot of people from the BKA, which are all wonderful, generous people. So I was always lucky to be able to hang out with them years. And this exposure, both at the dojo through AL and through European seminars, immediately taught me a sense of how it's really a family. It's, it's an extra family for us. Personally, I don't need to make friends. I have a very, I'm lucky to have a very uh, rich social network. I have a group of friends that I've known, about 12 of them, that I've known since I, was, since I was in primary school, since I was 10, 12 years old. And we still hang out on a regular basis. And those are my, this is my, my primary social group. I have a family, I have two daughters, married. I'm lucky that my parents are still alive. So I have a, I have a rich family experience. So I don't need an extra social circuit. But we spend so much time practicing in the dojo, traveling to national, international seminars, going to Taikai, you know, this has a huge toll on our personal circles. And unlike you, you're, you're very fortunate that you can come and practice with your wife and you come along with your kids. So that, that, that's a great, I'm really glad when I saw you do this in, in, in the US, it was like, yeah, that's great because you can combine those two and you don't lose anything or, or not too much. There's always some trade-offs, I guess. But the point is very rapidly, you need to feel comfortable socially with everyone you're practicing because it's half the experience. I mean, you don't really, I don't really travel, travel to European seminars to practice. I usually, my motivation is I travel to meet people, starting of course, of course with sensei because it's still a very valuable teaching opportunity because I can't go every year to Japan. I've only gone thrice uh, to Japan to train. Every opportunity I have to hear what Sensei can say is a great opportunity. But mass seminars is not really a place for deep learning. So if I don't have the motivation of actually meeting people that hopefully throughout the years became friends, or at least they're always fun to hang out with restaurants and bars after after their training, why bother? Why, Why would I spend all this time outside of my social circle, which is fairly rich, and I'm, I'm fairly fulfilled with it outside of Budo, I still spend a huge amount of my time outside of this circle. So community was crucial to my long-term commitment to Budo. If I didn't have this, I would have gave up years ago, for sure. And one of the clearest, I guess, illustration for this, which um, surprised me in, in a good way, I guess, my first couple of years as a Mudan Shodan in Iaido, I, I participated to several Taikais European Championship, my French national Taikais. And also in 2005, I went to the World Taikai, International Taikai that the BKA organized, which was a wonderful event with, I can't remember how many countries, but probably at least 20 countries represented, including the US, Australia. I don't remember Canada. I don't know if there was anyone from Canada. But it might have been. I don't know if you remember that or not. But. And I know Michael Hodge went to something. Right. So because I mean, there was, I think there was, it was a Koryu Taikai. Okay. Might, was yeah, this one? Was one? Several. 
No, that was that was not a Koryu Taikai. That was uh, just an international Seite Taikai. Mm. Um, but anyway, so it was, it was a wonderful, and there's huge Japanese delegation, of course, uh, under the, the guidance of Ishido Sensei, you know, multi representation. It was a wonderful event. And in my little Mudan category, I was, I met a U.S. guy was there, Kailan, that you know well. And we started talking and you know him, he's extremely friendly. Uh, so you know, we started talking to each other and, and that was in 2005. And then we kind of kept touch, you know, once in a while through Facebook, just like this, you know, nothing very formal, but it turned out to be a, a crit critical part of my training because when I returned to the U.S. for a job in um, 2015, so 10 years after, the first person I contacted because I was moving back to New York City and I knew he was living there was Aram. And I emailed him and said, hey, I'm going to be in, in the city. Well, actually, it was in 2012. I had an internship in New York, in, in New York at a, the medical examiner's office. <clears throat> and I said, I'm going to be in New York for a month. We should meet up for a beer and I'll be interested if I can come and watch some of your training. And I said, no, 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 no. You don't come and watch our training. You come and train. And I said, I can't bring my, my equipment because it's, it's a hassle and you don't find excuse. I'll bring you a hakama, I'll bring you a sword and you'll train. And I said, hi, senpai. <laughs> and I just came and I went to the dojo. And of course, I contacted through him to ask authorization uh, with Kato Sensei. Sensei, if I could come up and train, it was no issue. So I trained, I think twice in, with them, which was amazing. And then three years later, when I returned for, to move, I moved back to the US for my uh, job. Well, of course, he was my, my direct contact. So I officially asked through my, uh, through my sensei who I, who I could train with, and everybody pointed directly at Kato Sensei for obvious reason if you're in the U.S., because he's an amazing sensei. He's also my Koryu lineage, Mr. Shinden Ryu, so it was an easy fit. And because I had already met him through uh, Aram when I came in 2012. So this is just to say that without even you know, doing anything, I was already... I hadn't realized I was ingrained in a Budo community that stretched everywhere. And through proper connections, if you follow the proper etiquette uh, and you, you, know, you don't mess around, uh, with a few phone calls, you can be introduced anywhere and find an actual community. And I was welcome in the US in a, an amazing way. I was, this was a, a critical developmental step for me when I, I started training in the US because in France, I had moved a couple of times, and so I had to train in several dojo, and so I was kind of in a, in a, lim, in a, uh, a limbo of sort in terms of sensei. Uh, I was still practicing at the European seminars under sensei's lineage, but I didn't have a, an official sensei anymore. And so it, it, it was kind of hard to, you know, without my, my personal connections, especially through the, the BKA people, and especially through the, the very benevolent guiding of Hobson Sensei uh, and Watson Sensei and my Senpai Holborn, uh, I would have been a bit lost. I might have dropped out of Budo. But moving to the US and being welcome at Kato Sensei's dojo, which is an amazing dojo in terms of, of, of skills, in terms of people, and as importantly, at the same time, I was also introduced to Parker Sensei at Kenzen Dojo, where she immediately invited me to train in her dojo as well even though she's uh, Jikiden Ryu line, I said, you can come practice Sete Iyai with us. That would be great. And because she's a, she, she's a, she has her hands on, on a lot of things, she also wanted me to come and, and train with them in Jodo. Because Kata Sensei was not practicing Jodo at, at, at their dojo, 
and Parker Sensei was trying to create some uh, inertia to build up a Jodo Federation in the US, which to my understanding still doesn't really exist uh, officially, but she wanted to have some students that are not beginners anymore to start uh, the first Jodo seminars in the US. And so because I was, what was that? I was, I was only in Nidan when I arrived, but I was still the senior in this at Kenzen. So she asked me if I could help teach Jodo class, which was a brand new thing for me because I had never taught I had never taught Jodo before. I taught Yaido before, but not Jodo. And I said, if I can help, you know, the first class I arrived and she was like, Ozo. <laughs> like, okay, let's get to it. So that was kind of stage one, this warm, generous welcome from, you know, two amazing Nanadans, Kata Sensei and Parker Sensei, you know, and, and finding immediately a, a, a fully built community was amazing. I've lived five years in, in New York I've barely made any U.S. friends outside of the dojo. And, and, but in the dojo, I had a very rich social life as well, very comparable to what I had uh, before in France. And, and again, this sense of community, this sense of social uh, connection was critical to keep, us, to keep me going, to keep you know, waking up Sunday mornings for Keiko and several times a week and truck through the snow in, 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 in New York City to go to the dojo. You need some motivation, and, and the community was key in this regard. So at a personal level, what I had felt originally, this inner practice, especially in Yaido, was my original impetus to, 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 to train and change my character and build confidence and overcome some of my, what I felt like kind of emotional weaknesses. And that was, and I, I'm, you know, I could feel some progress, still a long way to go, but it was definitely something that, that kept me going. But the sense of community and the number of people I've met, uh, wonderful people. I mean, on average, 95% of the people I've met in the Buddha community are all wonderful people. And so that's probably the biggest motivation today is to continue to interact with these people and learn from them from various perspectives. So yeah, that, that was... That was a key developmental stage. And it seems that when we talk about this community and this social group in Yaido or Jodo or Kendo, it's not just the social, it's not just having fun with each other. Because if you give an example of Aram forcing you to go to the dojo and Parker Sensei just right. dropping this responsibility of teaching on you, there's something more than just having fun with each other. There's, it, it seems like as a community, we're all trying to get better. We're all building each other. So we're propping exactly. each other up. If someone's dragging behind, then we pull them up. If we're feeling uh, a little low, then someone else will drag us, pull us up. It's more than just, yeah, having fun. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly it. You've put it beautifully. We have a common goal. We all aspire to become better, to put it, you know, in a cheesy, <laughs> cheesy way, we all want to become better persons. But the community aspect of it is that we're never alone. And so personally, I've never understood people who practiced kind of on, you know, in their cave, in their little personal hole and want to hug knowledge, want to, you know, stay isolated. This is for me a complete paradoxical approach to Budo. But, you know, even if I say this, I don't judge because we all have our own way and, and, and there's no better ways. No one's ways is better than, than, than the others. 
so that's fine. But at least from the start, I realized that I don't want to go that way. I want to go through the community way. I want to go through the, 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 the sharing of knowledge. I want to go through the, the, at first it was, in the US for five years, I was teaching at the university level. So I was a professor at NYU. And when I teach at the university, I always try to learn from my students. Even though the, the, the level of knowledge is, is more akin to an Anadan teaching a Shodan, because when you teach you know, freshmen, undergrads, they really know nothing. And so you really have to be very basic. But even, even in this context, I try to keep an open mind and I, I want to learn from their personal experience. So of course, I'm not going to learn about my field, but their questions about my field, they're very basic, naive questions about my field, forces me to make sure that what I understand of my field is correct, precise, accurate, and that I can give it back in a format that's digestible to anyone. And of course, that's fully translated, trans, uh, translatable, I guess, to Budo. At first, I would teach with this in mind. If I teach a beginner, what can I learn from them? Now, I'm trying to not even think about that. I'm just giving away whatever I have. And whatever bounces back, I'm happy to take. But this change in perspective really came through Kato Sensei and Parker Sensei's teaching. Parker Sensei had, so it was really interesting to train their do, in, in both of their, those dojo because they had a completely different approach to teaching. Kato Sensei seems to be, seems to be much more traditional in, in the Japanese teaching where he doesn't uh, explain much. He teaches by example. There's a beautiful Iaido example and you're supposed to pick up your, the points and then he would point you know, your foot, your hand, say a few words, and then you had, I had the chance to have all those wonderful senpais to look at and pick which one I would want to look like and, and reproduce you know, the, 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 their forms. Because it's a fully structured dojo from Nana Dance all the way to Shodan. I think all the dance were, are, are, are uh, represented there. So it was a wonderful opportunity. Likewise in Kenzen, with Parker Sensei, he had from Nana Dance to Shodan, every, every dance was represented. So it was a very rich stru structure, which allowed you to really see, I think some of your guests mentioned this before, but in Japan, what you're supposed to be doing at every dan level. You can see the difference in your senpais and your sensei, and that really gives you a, 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 a structured goal to aim your practice. Within this, Parker Sensei was much more Western in her teaching. And, and I guess also because of her professional teaching, she really liked to deconstruct things and go at it at 10 different angles at the same time, giving you a, a breadth of perspective that, that was amazing to watch. Uh, and she also emphasized teaching how to teach to the seniors in the dojo. And she was generous enough to include me, even though I was a guest at her dojo. She very rapidly put me, because I was Yondan in, in Iaido, at the time, she put me on the Tosaki side, on the, the sensei side, to help teach with all the other wonderful sensei that were there. So she pulled me up by, again, giving me responsibility, but not blindly, not dumping them on me, by very carefully and gradually teaching me how to take on those responsibilities. And this was a wonderful learning curve and growth for me to be able to be guided by uh, such a wonderful sensei within such wonderful senses with these within these two dojos and so 
So, I mean, this, this is how I think I converted from a student to more of a teacher and where I could parallel my professional teaching career with now my Budo teaching career, not career, but path, I guess. And so this parallel and overlap really made it part of my life. I mean, this is why now I would not dream of dropping training because it really is a piece of the puzzle within my complete mental building process that, that has to be there uh, for me to be balanced. I just want to mention also in Jodor in particular, another huge uh, shout out at our Jodo teacher, Jodo sensei, Mike Scott sensei, who was uh, kind enough to help Kenzen and Parker sensei build up the Jodo skills by coming from New Jersey to train with us on Sundays and built up our level. Mike sensei is more of a Koryu person and is, is, is Menkyo in Shinto Muso, Ryu Jodo. And when I arrived, now again, I was only Nidan, I was fairly square in my technical approach thanks to the European teaching, European level teaching of Jodo. So I knew what I was doing in terms of, of Zen and KR Jodo for my level, of course, for a very beginner's level. And Mike Sensei, what he explained was you know, at some point he was not interested in practicing Seite Jodo anymore. And he really dedicated uh, his training much more to Koryu than anything else. But because Parker Sensei asked him to help in, in, in Seite Jodo, he went back to it and, and, and taught them that. And so when I arrived, very rapidly we realized there was some techniques that didn't fit. I was doing certain moves that was really different from what he was doing, but he's so senior to me. Then, of course, I just shut up and did what he told us to do. But the amazing change I've seen over the five years, and I really mean this as a huge compliment, is that even Mike Sensei changed his own practice while he was practicing with us beginners in Seite Jodo, because he was open enough, generous enough, and, and as we usually say, you know, the, the tr traditional metaphor of coming in at a practice with your bowl empty. He would even do this even after something like five decades of training, including a couple in Japan and, and, and mastering several koju in several martial arts. He would still come with us, shodan, nidan, mudan, and apparently learn from us because he repeatedly said that now he started to understand how the technical committee of the Zedenkar Jodo uh, 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 federation put so much thought into uh, Seite Jodo that all comes from Shinto Musoriyu that it couldn't be just random choreography. It has to have a deeper meaning to it. Even though the technique seems simple, of course, they have layered in-depth meanings like any other ZNKR kata. But, I, and I'm sorry if, 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 I, if I'm not, if I'm misinterpreting what Mike Sensei told us, but it seemed that at some point in his training, he kind of dropped it because he didn't see that. And by retraining on a regular basis with us, he started to gradually realize that, yeah, there are things. And he put in the effort to make a synthesis of his Koryu approach with ZNKR Jodo and find ways to integrate our variation, our differences within his teaching. And that was a wonderful teaching moment because then I realized, wow, if you really put the efforts and you really stay open-minded, then you can and try to understand the logic and the roots of what people are practicing. 
and we go back to what we were saying at the beginning, how I really like to go back to the roots of things, this was another click moment where I realized, yeah, by doing this, you can remain open-minded and integrate anything that any sensei can teach you in your practice. And suddenly you're not in a conflict oppositional mode of my sensei is doing this, so anything else is crap and I won't practice it, you know, better off, you're not my sensei, I'm not gonna listen to you, even though you're talking to a Hachidan Hanchi in EI who's telling you, you know, you should, your foot should be 45 degree and not 30 degree. And you're saying, yeah, I don't care. My sensei said 30 degrees. So, you know, I'm not going to listen. This was a very, this was how I was originally taught. Follow your lineage, you know, strictly everything else discard. And it never really felt right. Through my U.S. experience, through Kata Sensei, Paka Sensei, and Scott Sensei teaching and generosity and open-mindedness, I found a way to convert that initial understanding of learning into a much richer learning experience where today anyone senior to me can teach me a point. I will take it as an exercise, even if it's completely different than what Isha Sensei is teaching, what Hobson Sensei is teaching or Watson Sensei is teaching. It doesn't matter. It's a great exercise. If I'm, not able, if I'm not able to train in it and implement it on a regular basis, then I'm not flexible enough. I'm stuck in a form. And that's not, a, for me, not a good growth uh, path. I need to be, well, I don't need to be, but I feel like being adaptable and flexible enough to integrate any change in your practice is the interesting process. The process of, you know, are you able to change on the spot during this seminar right now your technique, and then maybe revert back to what Sensei is telling you. It doesn't matter. Now you have a new tool. Now you have maybe a new keyhole. Now you have a new variation that you can use to understand why are you doing this specific cut? Why are you doing this specific turn? Why are you, you know, doing this specific technique? And not just because Sensei told me so. And this was really a leap in my understanding. I don't know if it reflects in my practice. Probably not yet. But after I passed Godan two years ago, I decided that for my uh, Rokudan in EI, this would be my training process. I would completely deconstruct all my Sete Kata and all my Koryu Kata and try to understand and try to find a way to make it personal, I guess. I guess that's one of the goals at Rokudan and, and, and up level is to demonstrate that, you've, that you can interpret the Kata your, your, in your own way. Mm -hmm. This this attitude of flexibility is so wonderful and important, and is something that like we you don't normally you don't see when you first enter the martial arts because it's like supposedly this rigid thing where you're doing drills and you have to follow a certain curriculum. But I think that's a reflection of these great senses that you've had the privilege of training with, and also your yourself being so open to their guidance, being open to understanding that you can still learn from anyone. I feel like. We can talk for another hour, but we're approaching the end of this hour. Yeah. I would love to have you on again to, to continue discussion because there's other lines that I wanted to talk about. But to wrap this one up, just as like a first one, I'd like to ask you a couple of just quick and more fun questions. Sure. So the first one is, do you have a quote or proverb that you live by or practice by? Not really. I mean... I think, and, and I can never remember it, the actual reading of Yaido, maybe you know the, 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 the sentence, 
I'm, I'm completely blanking it, but one way to interpret it being being ready at all time to react appropriately. You know, the, the origin of E and I, another reading for the kanji, and I'm sorry, I'm blanking the sentence, is now something that I'm trying to really, I don't want to say embody, but live by when I train. So that, that would be it. I, I think you might have written it as tsunani ite kuni awase. Was that? Yes, that's the, that's the one. Uh, yeah, that's one of the translation interpretation of Iaido. I know there are a couple of them, but I really like this one because it, it illustrates well, both professionally and in Budo, what I've been trying to do without necessarily knowing it. And now that I am conscious of it, I'm trying to implement it systematically. Yes. Mm. If there's a sensei or practitioner that you've never met before that you can have a day-long conversation with regardless of language barrier, who might that be? I think for historical reason, might be Nakayama Hakudo sensei because he was such instrumental in shaping up modern uh, Yaido Kendo and, Ju and Jodo that I would be really interested, interested to understand his motivation, his inner uh, struggle to come up with these, with these new, completely new systems, schools. And so, yeah, probably, probably him would be a, a really interesting starting point. Mm, cool. Have you been to Tokyo? Yes. All right. So question, Tokyo restaurants, New York restaurants, or Paris restaurants, and why? <laughs> Good one. Uh, the one thing that I miss about New York is, are the restaurants because it's probably the one city on earth where there are so many foreign communities with their own foreign cooking and not adapted to Western palates, not adapted to, especially not adapted to U.S. taste. That would be a, a crime for, from a French standard, unfortunately. But bringing their own cuisine to New York inside their community created a, a sense of, you could travel, you can walk three blocks and travel three countries and eat three completely authentic food from three completely different continents. And that was an, sorry, an amazing experience. So New York, th that's what I miss the most. But Paris, even though it doesn't have the same diversity, the quality is so much higher. You can go into any little cafe and even if you, they, they just cook you a, a, some steak and fries, it will be much better quality, much cheaper than what you can get uh, in New York, uh, at least for the same price. Now, Tokyo uh, is kind of the same as Paris. Less diversity, but the quality is always there. And even in some cheap street food you know, vendor, the, 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 the cook are always going to pay very close attention to any little details on the, on the dish, not, 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 not in a fancy way, but if they're going to put something in it, it's not for, for show, it's for taste. And so the food there was just amazing. And I think I spent three quarter of my budget on food in, in, in Japan. Every time I, goes there, I go there, it's, you know, I, I've even dropped some Budo equipment just to go to restaurants <laughs> the last time I was there. So yeah, they each have their, their pluses, yeah. Yeah, and after this lockdown is over, we're totally going back to all those. Hopefully not too many of them go under. Yeah, that's in New York. It's I'm sure a lot of them are going to go under because it's because of the rental system and the, the craziness, craziness of the price. In France, they're a little bit protected, 
So some will go under, but a lot of them are, are protected. So they should survive. I don't know how, what, what the Tokyo situation or the Japan situation is, but yeah, hopefully we'll be able to return. Yeah, I think they never really fully locked down in Tokyo. Mm, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so somehow they managed. Okay, so just a final question. Is there any comment or thing that you want to say to the audience that you want to share right now? We'll have other opportunities in the future, but how would you like to close this off? I, I really think, I mean, the main point that we've addressed is if you want support during your training in Budo, you'll have it because there's such a huge, friendly, welcoming community throughout the world. And especially in Europe, I mean, Ishido Sensei's lineage alone is very often described as a family because he has so many Manjin direct students, Jikiman, sorry now, they're called, and, and students of students and you know, three generations down, that anywhere you go, you can find a dojo to practice in where you feel safe, where you feel welcome. And even outside of, it, of this particular family, through the European Championship, through international European seminars, everybody's welcoming. And there's such a strong support that, you know, in doubt, if you think you're going to drop out of Budo, just reach out and you'll find someone, you'll find someone to help you and bring you along. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. So yeah, hopefully we can have another conversation. I'm so glad we can manage this and hopefully your okay. trip back to the city is okay and then you stay safe. Thank you. Yeah. You too. Thank you for having me. And thank All you right. for the podcast. It's fun to be able to hear some of our friends interview. So it's a great thing. Good luck with that. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for sharing your story too. My okay, pleasure. so I'll talk Have to you again day. soon. Bye. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode because we have a lot more exciting conversations to share as we explore the world of the traditional Japanese martial arts. The Inside Look podcast is available on most common podcasting platforms and on YouTube. Remember to subscribe to not miss out on new interviews as they are posted. We're always looking for feedback to improve, so please write us a review or drop us a line at podcast at tokushikai.ca or on Facebook and Instagram at tokushikai.canada. Until next time, thanks for listening.